I wouldn't be fulfilled if I just taught. And it wouldn't like solve that need to constantly learn and adapt and kind of like to be the roadrunner and like figure out how to change and like, you know, pivot really quickly, you know. And I think that that's really important to me. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Academics Means Business. This is your host, Dr. Lindsay Padilla. Today, I have a fascinating guest. Her name is Lydia Kitts. We met online in a Facebook group, uh, Humans of Online Business, I believe, which um, is just a refreshing group in the online space. And I was kind of spying on her a little bit, and I, I think she had followed me and said something about being a professor. And I reached out and I was like, you should totally be on. And she said, she was like a little hesitant. She's like, well, I don't know if I could contribute. Um, You know, my background's a little bit different than some of your guests. And I said, you know, maybe that's true, but I have a feeling we're going to have a good conversation. Uh, We hopped on the phone, had a conversation. And of course, sure enough, sure, sure enough, she was fascinating. We got into a lot of her uh, educational background was very different, very unique. Um, She basically had her first college class as a seventh grader, which is fascinating. So we talk a little bit about, you know, just how her experience as a young kid in in college classrooms really fed her obsession with learning in a college setting and why i think um, she wants to stay teaching at a college because there there is this desire uh, to give back and specifically to give back to her community. Um, she is in a very small town in Appalachia. Uh, her family and generations of her family have been there. And so we talked a lot about um, how she's giving back to her community. And even though she's making more money in her business um, or potentially can make more money in her business in a given weekend than she can make an entire year of teaching... Uh, she wants to stay teaching and uh, really wants to make sure, uh, you know, the youth in her communities are equipped to go out into the labor market and to really make a difference in the world. So Lydia, as a young person, a young professor, um, is we talk a lot about the types of courses she's teaching and how that is having an impact um, on her students. We specifically talk about uh, parallel learning, which she will go into detail about. But um what I love about our conversation is is really how I think what I want to say is really how much there is to be said for a deeply individualized student-centered curriculum and how it just creates these amazing human beings. I mean, Lydia, to me, is an amazing human being. So I hope you learn a lot from this conversation. Um, her background and her her education may be a little bit different than some of the listeners, but the inspiration that I received from her, just listening to her talk about teaching and learning and her experience as a student and now how she's applying that to her classroom. I mean, I'm sitting here just being like, girl, I love you. Please stay in the college system as long as you can see fit because the world needs you. So without further ado, I would love to share with you the episode with Lydia Kitts. Welcome, Lydia. We're so excited to have you on another episode of Academics Mean Business. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I love listening to this podcast and virtually meeting all of these wonderful academics in business. 
Oh, yay. I'm excited, too. I'm going to find every last one of them (laughs) on the Internet (laughs) and make sure they come on the show. I'm really glad uh, you're enjoying the interviews. And I am excited to hear about your story and your background, because I do think it's um, a little bit unique compared to some other folks we've had on the show. Um, I think your background is is super fascinating. And uh, so I can't wait to kind of jump right in. How does that sound? Sounds wonderful. (laughs) Awesome. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with us your what you learned, what you're passionate about, um, where your academic journey has taken you. So give us a little bit about your background, your BA, any any graduate work you've done, and then, you know, where you're teaching now and what that looks like for you. So I've had a little bit of a non-traditional academic experience, I suppose. Um, My very first college class was in seventh grade. It was a microbiology class. Um, And from there, I just took college classes every single semester. And in the summer, um, I was really, really fortunate to go to the school that I went to. Mm. Um, I went to a school here in Kentucky, and I got to take classes at Berea College, um, which if you haven't checked out that school before, it's wonderful. You should. Um, <laughs> we'll but, link to the show notes in the show notes for sure. Oh, yeah. It's it's amazing, um, especially since they let, you know, middle schoolers yeah, and high schoolers come on the campus. Could you tell me, I'm just yeah. curious in general, what was there like a partnership with the school, like some sort of kind of, is it extracurricular or w- did you sign up for that? Um so the microbiology class was extracurricular. Okay. Um, there were a group of students in my grade. I graduated with 68 students in my class. So it's a oh, really, wow. really small school, like my high school was. But um, the school is pre-K through senior year oh, wow. with the expectation mm-hmm. previously that you would go from the city school into the college. Um, and the college is really, really well known for, um, it's a tuition free school. So it's a labor school. And we have a whole bunch of like really great partnerships between the college students, specifically like anybody in the education major would come down and do their student teaching with us. And then we would get to go there and do that. And we were doing a program in middle school starting out, which was an IMAST program, which is a type of curriculum that's, um, focuses on integrated math, art, science, and technology. Mm Mm-hmm which was amazing. So instead of just going to a science class or to a math class or to an English class, we, and learning, you know, independently of those subjects, we did things like make solar powered cars and trebuchets and things where we combined all of that information. There was never like the situation of like, well, I'm never going to use this in real life Mm -hmm. because we were actually applying it. Um, And that's kind of also where the college came into play with the microbiology classes. Whoever was in that IMAST program got to go up to the college and take classes too. Um, So it was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed it, but it definitely instilled like this obsession with learning from like a very young age. Um, but, and not just learning, but learning in a college setting, Mm -hmm. um, which I still like, I love to do Mm -hmm. and I get do it every opportunity I can, which is fun. But, um, so I went there taking classes from seventh grade until my senior year. And then whenever I graduated, um, it's an income-based school and my parents made too much money, so I wasn't allowed to go there. Mm. Um, so I went to school at Lees McRae College in Banner Elk, North Carolina, and I got a degree in costume design and technology, mm. which was a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. I really enjoy it. Um, I got to work with people all over the world, um, working, you know, 
at the Globe Theater in London. I got to do a lot of really fun stuff. And then my husband got a job in uh, Kentucky at a very small private rural college and there was no theater anywhere nearby. Like I couldn't even get oh, flown wow. out or um, go work on movie sets or anything like that anymore because the the drive to an airport was just so far. It was like three and a half to four hours. Um, so I kind of didn't really have anything to do. I had a business, you know, I've had an online business since I was in, I think middle school was my first business that was online. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. Um it was making bicycle bags out of wood and leather. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'm a cyclist and I love stuff like that. Um, and then I also used my sewing skills. Um, yep. And so anyways, there wasn't really anything to do for me. And I'm a social person, even though I'm an introvert and I really like to be with other people. And so that's whenever I kind of like, I realized that I needed to do something that was out of the house where I could actually like... Mm be with others. And Mm -hmm. a position for an admissions counselor was open at the college. So I joined in on that and um, I loved it. For the first Mm -hmm. year that I was there, I thought that it was just so much fun. I really enjoyed making connections with the faculty. Um, There was one faculty member that I made a really strong connection with. She was in charge of the communications program and I would help her. Um, I'd come into classes and teach um, like the creative suite because that's something I had to learn at the college that I went to for my bachelor's degree for costuming. Um, I had to learn how to use illustrator and InDesign. Mm. And so I would go in and, you know, just teach like kind of like a, a week long class on the project um, or on the program. Sorry. But then I got pregnant and we had our first kid. And when I came back from maternity leave, I was moved over into the communications uh, office. So not mm. the program, like academic program, but the office mm-hmm. for um, graphic design and digital marketing. Um, so I did like all of their website stuff. I did all of their social media, any ads, digital campaigns, like print and video as well. And some strategic storytelling for our um, for fundraising campaigns mm. for our advancement office. And then about a year and a half later, I had another baby and came back from maternity leave and they moved me over to being a full-time professor. Um, so that was like kind of how I ended up being a professor. It's more of like, mm-hmm. I'm a multi-passionate person, but I'm not so mm-hmm. much multi-passionate as I am a multi-passionate who goes wherever I'm needed to serve mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. in either life or business. And so sure. I, I really enjoy that. And I enjoy like mastering one thing and then moving on to the next. Um, mm-hmm. I was listening to a previous podcast of yours where you were talking about, uh, I forget who it was with, but talking about like the need for validation mm-hmm. as an academic. Yeah. And yes. like to get your like little certificate that you passed the class or that you did the thing. Yep. And mm-hmm. as I was listening to that, I was like, yeah, yep. That's, that's yep. me. That's my life. Yep. <laughs> totally. And um, yeah. so it was nice like to hear that other people are like that too. Mm. And I'm not alone in mm-hmm. my needing to know that you've done it. You did a good job. Go do something mm-hmm. else. Um, <laughs> so <Eight> plus. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I mean, that's like, yeah, I get really excited yeah. about that. Me too. Um, <laughs> so anyways, uh, I... In between all that time, uh, I was three credit hours away from a second master's degree Ah. in educational leadership. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that I would have to work with children for the third class. And I don't 
children and I don't get along very well. Um, they scare me <laughs> and I'm really totally. intimidated by Except them. Except your I love own, my, I'm assuming. Yes, I love my <laughs> yeah. kids, but the thought of being in a room with 25 other children is terrifying. <laughs> totally. Um, so, but then my other master's degree is in um, journalism and mass communications and it's focus mm. is public relations and social PR. So focusing on using social media as a public relations tool and kind of like it's oh, holistic, cool. like for marketing and advertising and storytelling, um, all these fun things, which I really enjoy doing. So um, that is kind of where like my path has taken me mm -hmm. up to this point. And my first, I guess, college class that I ever taught was my freshman year of college and I was teaching mm. a sewing course. And then oh, after nice. that, I just kind of became a little obsessed with it and I loved mm -hmm. it. And like I've created a whole social media, um, social media public relations, like certificate program at our school. Um, that kind of thing makes me happy. And I really enjoy creating things to share my knowledge and share what I know and mm. what I love. And I think that's what I like the most about like online business is that I can continue totally. doing that and reaching more people instead of mm -hmm. just rural Appalachia, which I think is really important to reach too. But there are only so many people I can reach um, totally. in such a small area. Yeah. Well, I love this. Thank you. That is you. You're so interesting to see how. Um, <laughs> well, I love that your like obsession with college started so early in learning, and the fact that you had the opportunity to take college courses. I, I mean, what, I'm just could imagine the impact that had on you as a student. Um, you know, keeping up with college kids, like knowing that you were basically, you know, right there next to them and, and doing their content and like, and then moving kind of just like moving along the path of college. Did you, did you like get early credits and stuff too? Like taking like, you know, AP courses or whatever. So oh. you went into that like credits ahead. I took one AP class at my call or at the high school that I went to, mm -hmm. but it was nowhere near as challenging as the college mm. classes. And so mm -hmm. I was bored to death. And so were the yeah. rest of the students in my class. Like it was like, Ooh, I forget nice. why we were put into the AP class. It, it was something state, like the state wanted us to do because they're like, oh, you guys are taking too many college classes. Like we need to have some classes, you know, on your campus. And so we all got stuck in there and we all just kind of like twiddled our thumbs and I don't even know. I don't even know what happened in that class, to be completely honest. Um, but the <laughs> all of the college classes we got, we got to keep on our transcripts as non-degree. Wow. Um, so, and we didn't have to pay for them either, which was really mm -hmm. nice. Um, mm -hmm. So, and like my brother and sister went through the same, like getting to take the classes. But then also, Bria is a really small town, so most of mm -hmm. the professors, like they didn't dumb down the class at all for us. Like mm -hmm. we were expected to play play with the, you know, the big kids and do mm -hmm. well and not bring the class down. Like there was, we were always told like, there is no curve for you. Mm. If you are out of school for something like still have to do your work. Like we had to mm -hmm. follow all of the same rules. Um, we got access to the same tutors, but then also nice. all of the professors already knew us, um, because we were mm. kids in the community and it's a really tight knit community too. Mm -hmm. So if we had issues, like I had issues in my math class. And so I would go over to my professor's house and wow. they would like invite us to come in and help us. Um, and that was awesome. Um, and then where classes were, um, like, so if it was a Tuesday, Thursday class, we were expected to also on Monday, Wednesday, Friday during our like scheduled class time, 
um, we were expected to be in the college tutoring lab working on our coursework. Like if wow. we didn't show up for that. So I guess that was the extra. Oh, so that's how you got the like high school credits too, because you stayed yeah. like, you know, like in the time frame of going to high school, but um, as in college, the hours are different. Oh. Yeah. So we, we were supposed to go to do that too. And our school, the high school and the college worked together to do a lot of really awesome independent mm-hmm. study projects. So mm-hmm. my senior spring semester, I didn't have to go to school until noon each day because I was um, working with a luthier and building a violin from scratch. So like carving it out and learning how to do all of those hand things. Like in our community, we've got a really strong um, like artisan culture. Like Mm -hmm. we have an artisan's village, like weaving, all kinds of really cool things. And um, the college and the town work really hard to make sure like those skills are passed down. And so I had to choose something. I was like, oh, well, I'll make a violin. That sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. It was not fun. I have think I still have some blisters from then. But like <laughs> it was still – I learned a lot um, and a lot oh, more than just like how to carve it. Like there was mm. so much like the like technology and engineering the math, behind yeah, it. All of the – yeah. I was I just bet. like, whoa, I thought this was going to be an easy, fun project. Mm-hmm. Nope. Like wood glass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I love this. So I'm curious, does this have an impact on, you know, having had this experience as a child, does this have an impact on how you kind of foresee the future of education and the potential um, of what we could be doing with college material, um, you know, with our youth, like as, as far as like primary, secondary kind of education? What are your thoughts on what the future of education could look like with your background? I think that would be so interesting to hear. I'm a little obsessed with parallel learning um, Mm. in the Mm -hmm. sense of finding something that a student is passionate about, because this is something that Berea College also did with us, like where they, as soon as they knew that I was wanting to go into costume design and technology, Mm -hmm. all of my history classes, like history of the British Isles, I studied at the college level, every single assignment, she made me have some form of twist on how the fashion or how the tools to make things. So cool. It was amazing. It was so cool because instead of just having to listen to everybody tell about, you know, Mm -hmm. the same invasion, they got to do it from their Mm -hmm. own angle. So like the nursing students Mm -hmm. did it from a health angle. Like we talked about, Mm -hmm. you know, the black plague and like they got to talk about like the discoveries like the medical discoveries that were associated with that time period. So then whenever you were in class, you weren't bored because you were able to hear all of these different perspectives. And what I loved about that is that that's encouraged me, one, as a professor, but two, as just like a person and as a parent to be able to kind of like teach and show people how to look at things in a very holistic way instead of just focusing Mm -hmm. on like, one thing like, oh, I am just good at this. And so this is all I'm going to pay attention to. It's really made it easy to kind of look at everything like as a critical and a creative thinker. And Mm. um, I think that that's really important in business, but then also just out in, you know, the regular world. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's helped me to be able to adapt quickly um, Mm -hmm. and to really kind of, you know, I guess make, make stronger connections and better sure. connections with people because mm. um, just having that like cultural advantage too with it, like being able to look at things. And we learned from so many different voices within our, yeah. like it wasn't the same voice and mm-hmm. that was really mm-hmm. important. That's so. so cool. From a teaching yeah. perspective, 
I'm like, I'm just like imagining, oh my gosh, if I had to cater <laughs> to whatever, whatever, how, what was like the typical, um, number of students in a class that, a that, a, um, that a professor had to take care of at Berea, all of the classes that I was in had maybe 15 students. Awesome. Um, so cool. but it was, um, and Lise McCray did this some too. Um, especially if I, like whenever I introduced it to them and I said, Hey, like, this is what I'm used to doing. Can I do it mm. here too? And, um, it really, Berea, like, instilled the sense of, like, ownership in the project with us. Um, like, mm. the professors never chased us down to, like, figure out, like, what are you doing? Like, we were expected to come to mm. them and say, like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And so the professors, it was kind of, like, hands-off. Um, mm. So, mm-hmm. I, and I didn't at the time think that they were juggling as much. Like, as a, from a student perspective, I felt like I was just, like, here's my project. This is what I'm doing. Can I meet with you? And can we talk about it? Like, maybe you know a good book or a resource or a podcast that Mm -hmm. you've heard that you could kind of like push me towards. And, um, it created some really good and strong relationships with my uh, professors, but then now as a professor, and I'm trying to implement this, I will admit last semester, I got a little haywire. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so, but I also was teaching a lot of classes, um, between January of this year and right now I've taught nine courses. Um, so, mm. and they're all three credit hour courses, except for the one that I'm teaching right now is a six credit hour course. And, mm-hmm. um, and then in each of those classes, I had either 30 students yeah. in each class or two classes. I only had four students. <laughs> um, so oh, wow. it, what, what happened with that though, is that there was a lot of like cross pollination between the courses because it is such a small major that it was becoming kind of an issue. Um, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because they were kind of like doubling up the work. And I didn't really think through that on the professor side of it. I was just like, sure. I just remember doing this and I learned so much and it was awesome. And so I got a lot of um, feedback, which this is funny. It's from somebody else. I forget whose podcast, but it was talking about like how to get good feedback for your business. Mm-hmm. And whenever I was going through and looking at the surveys that our students get at the end of the semester, it's just like, you know, just a scale of, you know, one to five and everybody goes down and pushes fives and like somebody's like, you know, podcast or article or whatever it was, they said, you know, like ask, you know, open-ended questions that aren't yes or no. Mm -hmm. And so I sent them all a second survey and I was like, Hey guys, I want to know what I'm doing wrong, what I'm doing right. What would you like to see next semester? And I had three people fill out the like college provided survey and every single student filled out the one that I'd sent them and very detailed. Nice. And I think it was the first time somebody had like asked, like, what are your thoughts? Like, how can mm-hmm. we help you? And um, so what I've changed it for for um, next semester, because I'm an overachiever and like to have everything like super organized. I've already got everything planned for next semester, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it lets me focus on my business for the rest of the summer. So that's yeah. nice. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But focusing instead of like within our major or our program, they're going to choose um, one of their core classes um, because we're a liberal arts college. So they'll choose to apply whatever we're learning in the graphic design course to. Oh, cool. um, That's lovely. Like, so, so that way there's like a little bit more, and I've had to do a lot of like, I feel like I'm on a political campaign because I have made posters Mm -hmm. and I have gone to every single office and department and said like, Hey, I want to do this with you. Like to my, you know, my peers and everybody else on the faculty. Mm -hmm. Luckily I'm on our QEP committee. And so I've made it 
kind of a requirement for people to play nice with me and mm -hmm. to join in with what we're doing. Um, so it, it feeds into our, what our QEP is, so our quality enhancement plan. Um, okay. Yeah. But, uh, so anyways, I really hope it's going to go well. I've got a lot of professors that are, that do teach the core classes that are totally on mm -hmm. board. They're really excited, excited about, about it. it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but they're also all younger, like I am, um, yeah. mm -hmm. but still I'm the youngest by 10 years. So they're still, yeah. um, like bridging the gap a little bit, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, they seem, they seem pretty excited about it. And I, the students are really excited about it because it's yeah. not just going to be, you know, boring hypothetical projects. Yep. So, yep. yeah. That's so cool. Well, I love that. And I do, I think what I hear too, a little bit, cause I'm seeing, you know, just the trend of like homeschooling and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of it is project based learning, um, in, in some sort of way, like, okay, you know, I have a child that's interested in this way in this content or this, you know, whatever activity or thing, how can I make all the things tied to it? Now that takes a lot of planning and prep, but, um, I think, I do think what you're bringing up just to see, you know, another school, how it's organized, what's possible, you know, as much as it seems like, you know, people throw out like, oh, well, it's only possible because the school's really small or, you know, we don't have funding. I mean, there, there's all the reasons why, you know, what you experienced is not scalable. But if we really rethought the whole thing, it is it is actually scalable and would be much better for the type of economy and labor market we're headed into um, that we're feeling, I think, the the ramifications of. And so I'm just always thinking about what is the future of college going to look like as a college professor? But then the earlier part of that is, yeah, what is what is the future of primary education look like? And how are those things actually can have a better relationship? We used to talk about that for sure at my community college, which is very centered on the community and knowing that a lot of the students coming out of the high schools were going to be with us. How could we be starting you know, our journey with them earlier. That was definitely a conversation um, on our campus. So I love hearing this model. Um, and it sounds like it had quite the impact on yeah. you. Very cool. And it, it's really helped yeah. to in the schools that I've been a part of, like with retention rate and summer oh, melt and getting students, like building that relationship. I would have 100% gone to Bria College if they'd have let me. Like, yeah. there's no yeah. doubt about it. But they mm -hmm. also instilled like at Bria College, a like sense of stewardship too. And that if you weren't like, if your family was in a situ like a position to be able to send you to a different school, yeah. that you should embrace that. Like this school is for that. people yeah, with yeah. like really low, like EFCs mm -hmm. and people who genuinely need a like phenomenal education yeah, um, yeah. with no tuition attached. And so that extra, that um, extra support, like very cool. So it was like bittersweet that I went to another school, yeah. but it was still like, but it's so really cool great. to know that that exists like yeah. out there. Like I had, I've, I haven't even heard of anything like that. I've been, <laughs> I've been talking with a couple other folks who've had, you know, what I wrote down, even just in taking notes on our talk, it's like alternative education, which it sounds like so, like, <laughs> but, but you know, that idea that it's not what is like the standard or the mainstream. Um, and you know, um, meeting a lot of them in business. Like I could see that, you know, really fueling that creative um, go-getter, risk-taking, 
growth mindset, like the things you need kind of to be an mm-hmm. entrepreneur. Like it sounds like they were fostering uh, from the beginning. But here you are straddling, you know, both worlds that that academic, you know, you know, validation from, you know, professors and grades and all that stuff. But then the the business side of you um, that's recognizing, you know, we did a little bit of a pre-chat that, you know, that's recognizing you're making a, so much more in your business, you know, than you are potentially by, you know, teaching the courses that you're teaching. So that maybe as our transition, I'd love <laughs> to hear um, if you could kind of tell us a little bit about your kind of entrepreneur journey, if you will. And like you, you know, you kind of men- mentioned that your first business ever was making leather bags for bikes. Um, so I'd love to hear, you know, about this entwined um <laughs> experience for you where you're maybe potentially selling something or working out as an employee and you're following that academic love for for learning. So tell us a little bit about that if you don't mind. So my family owns a photography studio that has been around ah. for almost 75 years now. And wow. uh, my grandfather, he was one of the primary photographers for the war on poverty. And that's why he ended up coming wow. to Appalachia And that's also why he stayed. He was really disappointed Mm -hmm. in like the way that people were representing, um, you know, my people, like the people of Appalachian Mountains. And so he worked really closely with people to like build these relationships um, and represent them in a positive way. And so picking up on that from him and this photography studio that I was basically an indentured servant. I bet too. some of his images were used in my courses that I've taught oh, now I'm, that I think about I'm it. Potentially, sure that I'm, they were. Yep. I know, um, yeah. So he kind of inspired this crazy idea of mine that like I could make bike bags and mm-hmm. sell them on Etsy. Like, and one of mm-hmm. his friends had told him about Etsy and it was like at the mm-hmm. very beginning, like whenever it first started like coming mm-hmm. out and people were like, Oh, what's this? Um, so Anyways, I did that and I made um, custom bridesmaids and wedding dresses um, all throughout middle school and high school. Uh, I had to have my mom be like my co-person on Etsy. um, I bet. Because like with, you know, like money exchanging and stuff like that. And then most people would like realize I'd always send like progress pictures. And I don't think that they really realized that I was 14 or 15 making their wedding dress. Until They're they like, saw who's the that pictures. chick in the picture? Is that um, your daughter? <laughs> yeah. And then my mom would be like, no, like my mom, she taught me how to sew. And so it was just always like a really funny, she's like, I'm here if she needs me, but she sews better than I do at this point. Like, mm. just let her do it. It's going to be perfect. Like, don't panic. Yep. Um. So kind of continuing to do that. And then whenever I went to college, um, I had... It, the school that I went to was a pet-friendly college, Lee's McCray is, so I was able to have my cat with me. What? And why do you have the coolest? <laughs> <laughs> I am obsessed with your like schooling. I want. I wish that was my life. Yeah. Oh, oh man, this school was amazing. They had so like fun. bear cubs and bobcat kittens at the wildlife what? rehab center that you could get a whole major in wildlife rehab. But you could go down and you could say hi to them That's as long as they awesome. didn't see you, like so they couldn't imprint on you. But yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, um, very cool. So. I kind of had to um, give up sewing on Etsy because my cat was not very cooperative with the uh, sewing machine situation um, <laughs> in my dorm room. Um, she was terrified oh, yeah. of it. Um, so I was also the assistant manager of the costume shop. So I would go down. They, there was like 
an adult that was in charge of it. And then I would, I was the person like who worked with the work studies and like did all of that fun stuff. Um, so anyways, I would go down there and so, and started making costumes for the community. Um, there's, it's a really big retirement community. And so I would make all these really cool costumes and get paid like to make things for fun. And before I was just so doing cool. it, you know, to like fund a gap, like I would use whenever I was in high school, I would use it to pay for my dance trips. We would, um, it was a traditional Appalachian and historical folk dance team. And we would travel all around the world performing. Mm. And, but like our parents were not allowed to pay. It had to be all, mm. all the money we had to come up with. Um, it was wow. kind of like an equalizer to make sure that, you know, um, every kid had the opportunity to do it. Had the chance. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and so whenever I got to college, it just kind of became fun to make these things. And then I started realizing that like, I could make a lot of money mm-hmm. making <laughs> costumes for old people who have really mm-hmm. wild parties. Um, and <laughs> so I just continued doing that. Um, and then whenever I started working at a larger theater, um, I got kind of hooked up with this, um, not in like a nefarious way. I got connected with a, um, a production manager who would basically be in charge of like technical direction for touring theaters. And they were talking to me about how they do all of this setup and like emails back and forth and all this crazy stuff. And I was just like, well, why don't you just do it on all online and use at that point it was 17 hats. I was like, why don't you just use 17 hats to do like all of this booking information and you could get paid and you can choose like the retainers and you can do quizzes and questionnaires. And the guy was just floored. And he said, can you do Mm. that for me? I said, well, yeah, I can mm-hmm. do that for you. And that was the first time that like, I realized that I could sell a service and not a product. Uh-huh. And so then yep. I got to like work with these really amazing touring companies by doing the behind the scenes stuff um, of just like the booking and like making sure the right menus, like taking the wardrobe and hospitality yep. side of my job at the like theaters and applying it to an online space. Um and that was kind a of lot the of the admin side of it yeah. too. Very cool. And yeah. that was the first time that I'd ever realized that you could do that and that like you could have a career mm-hmm. in it. And that just kind of like branched off this whole new world of the digital like online business where I wasn't actually going to have to mail something to somebody or make sure it fit yeah. properly, um, mm-hmm. which was just like a whole – I was so excited about it. Um, so yeah. then I started applying like my graphic and website design skills that I'd learned in school um, mm-hmm. towards online businesses. So I um, made a business called Turnquest House where I started doing like brand development and um, just general graphic design, website design and development. Um, and I did that for a That's few- That's your current business, right? Well, or I'm no, just about a serial learner and a serial business creator. <laughs> no, I have not got that from our conversation so far. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so that's the current business that I do have and I run. Okay. Um, but a lot of people took my approach is very different because I'm creative, but I'm also very analytical. Um, my dad works for mm-hmm. Toyota doing like designing the insides, like the engines parts. And so he really helped oh, cool. me kind of like embrace this, like you can be pretty and smart or you can like, there's not just like mm-hmm. one thing. Um, yeah. so, uh, we've really, you know, or we being me and my sister, she helps me with the Turnquist house, um, business. Oh, cool. People kept getting like 
really surprised that I was just like, well, what's your visitor? Like, what's your bounce rate? You know, where are people going mm-hmm. on your site? Like, what's the flow look like? Have you done heat mapping? Have you done this? Like, have you done, you know, like UX surveys? And I was able to show like really, really great results from whenever we started working with each other towards the end, because I was looking at data and doing this data-driven strategy mm-hmm. side of things. Um, and I started getting people asking me not to m- make them a website or, you know, redo their branding, but just to look at their data and tell them what they're doing mm-hmm. wrong and how to Even fix it consult. and like little mm-hmm. tweaks and everything. So I started another business that just focuses on that, that's separate from my sister and I, um, so, cause she's also, she's pursuing, she's getting, um, her master's in OT. And so she's been really busy. So it was mm, just cool. easier to kind of like shuffle that off to the side. And that's what I've really been doing lately. And I really, really enjoy looking at that data and kind of like figuring out like, mm. what is the most strategic way for sustainable growth? Um, and that's been yeah. a lot of fun and I've really enjoyed that. And then I've got another. Yeah, and I know we've you and I have talked about this. We've we've chatted on the phone uh, before. I, I'm getting you here. Oh, yeah. um, there's very few people doing that. <laughs> like it's a very like you bringing this up, uh, marrying the creative and the analytical um, is so huge. And you know, so many people are so driven to the aesthetic piece and like, oh, I'm creative and I'm a designer and I do this. And then there's so many people that are like, I'm a developer. I create websites or whatever. Like, why does Squarespace? You know, it, is it even uh, made in a way that makes people, what do we want them to do? Probably sign up for something or like, you know, engage with the website. So like, is it even working? It doesn't matter how beautiful it is, right? Yeah. So you're just such a breath of fresh air in this space, just as an outside observer, by the way. Oh, so that makes um, me yeah, feel very good. interesting. <laughs> because yeah. there are a lot of people who just don't understand, like, it's kind of like, well, it's pretty. Why isn't it working? And mm-hmm. having to go mm-hmm. look at that, you know, the age-old issue of form over function like is this really worth it like is it so pretty that people don't understand what you're doing like is it clear like Mm. is it like painfully obvious and um I also like I've had to kind of like reel myself in sometimes on it because I do go into that like academic side of things Uh, whenever I'm explaining it I get way too excited and (laughs) start like talking about it I'm like well you know like you know, we need to look at this principle and, you know, there's this theory behind, you know, like how people, you know, use your website and like the number of clicks that Mm -hmm. they'll do, or, you know, the number of choices that they have to, you know, before they make a decision. And like, I've toned that back a bit because it definitely was like terrifying people. Um, but I still get like super excited about it. Um, if you can't tell, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, but no, yeah, it's just, it's a lot of fun. And it's something that I think people need to pay attention to, um, if they want Mm -hmm. to, like really, really just blow things out of the water. So very cool. So yeah, I think that's a great kind of uh, segue into that conversation that we love to have on this podcast, which is just what, what about well for you just like what about your educational background and your love for learning has really benefited you in running a business and I think we've heard some of that but if you wouldn't mind you know going through some of your strengths and why that is helping you create um, I think even specifically like the most recent iteration of your business um, so my bachelor's degree is in costume design and technology. And the technology side of things does not mean anything exciting like CAD or anything like that. (laughs) It literally means that I know how to look at a piece of fabric laying on a flat piece of table and 
can make the right amount of cuts on it to make it turn into a dress. Like that's what the technology Mm -hmm. side of it is. Most people are like, oh, that's awesome. And they're like, nope, that is not (laughs) what the technology means. Um, That's funny. So it's the focus on like the physical, like the making and then the doing of things within Mm. um, costume design. So creative data analysis, heat mapping, understanding how to like code a website, um, like responsive design or anything PHP related. I didn't learn that specifically in school. Mm-hmm. We learned how to do like Weebly um, and just enough oh, to yeah. like make a portfolio site so that if we went to auditions, people could see, go someplace to find the information. Um, mm-hmm. So I learned from these amazing women. Um, their names are Katie and Krista and they have the Web Designer Beauty School. And I just... I've taken every single course that they have because they're both brilliant, but um, learned how to do things that I never thought I'd be able to do. Like I knew that I was an intelligent person because I was, you know, surrounded by all of this education that I could just have free and easy access to. Um, And I took advantage of that. But the online space, there's so many voices that I I would get a little overwhelmed and not know what I needed to pay attention to. And they just really distilled all of the information for website design and development into like this little easy, understandable package that was just so simple. Um, And I loved it. And so, but I wouldn't have pursued learning from somebody else if I hadn't have Mm. had all of this like other, like this more formalized education. Um, Sure. But they were kind of like my little gateway drug into online learning because into the space yeah. and the learning that can happen. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that I didn't even know, I mean, I'm sure they hated me at some points because I would send an email or a Facebook message and be like, so how do I change the color of my words? And just really basic stuff. But it was that support too that you get in an online space. Um, mm. It's one of the reasons why I love online education in higher ed. Most people will say like, oh, well, you know, the students are going to come into your office and they don't take advantage of office hours. Um, and I've not had that either. Like I've not had anybody actually come into my office on campus. Everybody emails me Mm -hmm. or wants to zoom or Skype, or I have like Google docs. Like we've got some amazing chats going on in like Google docs on like their papers that they wouldn't have come and asked me otherwise. And having that online support and that instantaneous like validation that they were doing something right or that they were doing something wrong and needed to change directions was really beneficial but that's because I saw it myself whenever I was taking these online classes You're, yeah. in the digital entrepreneur space. You. Here's here's what's so funny as I'm bringing as this is all coming up for me and I know you're younger, right? Um and it, what's funny is um, my colleagues, because I taught online for a very long time, um, like basically ever since I could teach at the college level, had the degree, whatever, I had at least one online course, like basically almost every semester. So, um, you know, I really refined that process. But my colleagues would basically say terrible shit about the students being too entitled or too feeling like they could access you at any moment. Um, And what you're basically highlighting as a student who was able to do that and was told that that's okay because you're younger. And so part of your 
you know, understanding of the world is, oh, yeah, why? Well, that and also probably your unique educational background, like your teachers were totally except I mean, you were at their dining table getting private tutoring, <laughs> which is rare. But I even would would reckon to say because we yeah, I just found so many of my colleagues basically talking down on this like younger generation, which I was like such the bridge for like, I, what do I call myself? The oldest millennial. Like, I'm like the last year to get the cutoff. But, you know, they would talk shit about about their what they called their um, neediness or whatever. And I'm just like, you're getting too into this in a, in a perspective, like I get it. And there's there needs to be a balance. And that's true. But like, the learning management system specifically that we used in higher ed when uh, Canvas came out. Oh, dear. Um, the email system. W- did you use that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So when Canvas came out, it was such a breath of fresh air to me from a user interface perspective. It wasn't perfect. But, you know, compared to Moodle or like, um, you know, Blackboard as as two of the most popular um it wasn't email anymore. Essentially, the students were messaging you. And so, of course, the messages are going to be tighter. And of course, they're not going to have some like fancy, um, you know, salutation or, or closer or anything. And colleagues were like, oh, who do they think they are? And I'm like, you realize that communication is changing like as we live, like, <laughs> like you like and it's it, it's not their entitlement. It's like access and their world is different than ours. And so your idea of a professor email uh, looks a certain way. And to me, I'm like, if you can be straightforward and blunt, and I can help you really quickly move through something like, why wouldn't I want to do that? And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, sorry that you don't have boundaries. And you feel like you have to, you know, be super accessible at every moment, which is hard. And that to be fair, but um, it's just such a the generational uh, gap that I think, um, you know, the technology and the communication and, you know, the culture basically that we're experiencing is what is shifting higher ed. And you're totally like talking about it as this most positive thing. And so many of my colleagues were so negative about it. But that's that. Why wouldn't we want feedback with exactly where we are and what we're stuck on um, if we can get that feedback, you know? Well, um So this is like, unless I have somebody register for classes over the summer that um, is older, this is the first year that college students that I'm older than them. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, and I've been out of school for eight, eight years. Um, Mm -hmm. So, or out of bachelor's degree, eight years, but um, I graduated like really early from college too, but uh, I bet. So I came up with a lot of credit hours, but yeah. it's, it's so frustrating because mm-hmm. I'll be in faculty meetings and like, I'm a, their summer Senate, uh, representative and like a couple of other things. And I have to keep saying to them, like, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. Like you got into this yep. job to teach people and to help them mm-hmm. learn. Like, why are you not going to take advantage of that opportunity mm-hmm. to really, mm-hmm. really in the where they're at? Yeah. And exactly. it's, yep. Our biggest mission is serving rural Appalachian college students mm. and scaring them away with like mm-hmm. this rigor. I mean, they're not rigor in like challenging, but the rigor no, in like trying to communicate academic. with your professor. Yep. Like yep. that yep. is so frustrating and so hard and and unnecessary. Yeah. 
and like it doesn't help the relationship. Oh, it doesn't uh, help anybody. The teacher and the student. Yeah. yeah, they don't feel like they can come and ask you questions. They don't feel like they have the opportunity to truly learn and become, you know, nope. the people that we want them to be. And mm-hmm. giving them also, we need. I, I I know that a lot of my peers don't feel this way, but I feel like it's my job to educate them on how to behave in an actual job. And so by giving them the opportunity and the space to fail by communicating with me too much, I'm able to Mm. go in and be like, Hey, let's, you know, dial this back. Or instead of sending 13 emails, let's focus on sending like one email Mm. with bullet points on what you need. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. I have, it was so frustrating the first semester that I taught them because it was the constant barrage of emails. And then like once, and this sounds like really horrible, but once I trained them to do things the way that I wanted them to do, there are other faculty on campus who have come to me and mentioned like, Hey, you know, my students now are doing stuff in Google docs and I can actually use that. I didn't even know about Google docs until they showed Mm me. Or there's a couple other students that are, um, using Asana because I teach a course called digital career management and we go over like project management and yeah, I love it. It's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Um, but they learn how to use, you know, we do Asana and Monday and Airtable and Trello Mm. and a couple others and Dubsado, but like talking about how to use this technology and then how to like take that and apply it someplace else. Uh, or yeah, apply like it in to, their job or yeah. in their life. Yeah. Very and cool. There are a couple of students that have graduated, you know, just, you know, a few weeks ago at the beginning of May. And they've already mentioned, they're like, yeah, my, like this employer, they are just floored that we're using Asana. They've never mm. heard of it before. And like, they're able to tie a huge increase in like company wide productivity to just having project wow. management system. And, um, but it's, it's frustrating to me. And I don't know if this is like nationwide or just my school, but I feel like a lot of the older faculty are either afraid to, or just don't want to, or feel like it's not their obligation to learn these new tools mm-hmm. that I'm getting to experience mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. and, in the digital world. Like, you know, the use mm-hmm. of Moodle or Canva or Sakai or Blackboard versus mm-hmm. something like Okie or Access Alley or Teachable. Um, like mm-hmm. just making learning fun in an online space, um, especially since you know they're doing all of their work from their phone if it's mm-hmm. logging in online <laughs> or um, and like the gamification of our courses mm-hmm. and making them actually like fun things to do. You can gamify in class, but you can really gamify in an online course. And yeah. um, that has like just been really awesome and a lot of fun to be able to use this new technology that I would not have known about otherwise. I mean, I'm sure I would have, you know, stumbled across it, but I learned how to use it because of my business and because I follow. And quickly, like more quickly and in a more practical way. You know what you're bringing up this thought too on the idea of, um, so, so I would, I would venture to say that it is all over the country (laughs) (laughs) that there are faculty that are very resistant to new technology. Um, They're very resistant. And I think in some cases, it's not even just their own, you know, whatever insecurities or whatever, but I even either, you know, there's institutional constraints as well that they 
have been experiencing longer than you and I, right? As new professors, I left, you know, relatively early. I left before I got tenure, but I was only at my college as a full-timer for two and a half years, right? So I was young, right? Early in my professional career, as people would say. And, um, you know, people that have been there 10 or 20 years longer than us and more have just slowly watched over, you know, the last 10, 20 years, um, the creeping of the scope creep essentially is what we would call it in kind of the yeah. whatever the career space, but like the creep of what they're responsible for and then what they're getting paid. And so they're getting added all these extra tasks. So from my perspective, I have I, I, I have like I feel for them um, in that they're not getting paid to learn Asana or to practice this stuff or to, um, you know, add this kind of stuff to the courses they've been teaching for a while. And so they're at a point where, you know, they kind of got the thing running on autopilot and, um, you know, but they're still at negotiations begging for that last 1% raise, you know. And so the idea of adding to their plate um, is understandable. But generationally or or how whatever they want to kind of and I think this happens with every generation there's actually a, there's actually some sociological research on this about how we the most recent you know young generation is has always historically been blamed right for whatever is going on in the world and so it's easy it's such an easy button thing to say like oh kids these days you know act like x y and z and it's like you realize that the generation before you was saying the exact same thing and it's just like a lack of awareness they've <laughs> Um, against and Vietnam, so, <laughs> like it's exactly just... like we could li- literally every single generation was kids these days. So uh, you know, I'm super aware of that, and I don't know if it was because I left my teaching career when I was pretty close to that generation. So I I understood them, um, and I you know as a child of the the bridge between the analog and the digital kind of world, um, I. I was young enough to not have been set in my ways and, you know, in high schools when I got my cell phone, basically the Nokia or whatever, (laughs) obviously didn't do all the cool stuff. But like I was young enough to be like really exploratory with it and creative with it, which is why, you know, people my age are now running these corporations and businesses and tech companies. So that's all cool. So we like get it. But here's where I guess this comes to a conversation about higher ed um, and kind of full circle with what we were talking about earlier. Like, what does education look like um, if we're creating the, the next labor market for the world that we're living in? And if we do have teachers that are so resistant to really what is happening in the labor market when it comes to, um, you know, the accessibility and the ease of starting a business nowadays, um, are we preparing people to um, you know, have a skill set that, or, or even just the idea of like, you could start your business, not just become an influencer, a digital influencer, but like really run a business as, um, a young person. And I think that's where I start to like, I'm like, man, higher ed has, it's such a tough ship to turn around. And, um, there's a lot of, you know, archaic, traditional, things in place that's going to make it really difficult to shift. And I think what this podcast represents is a lot of people jumping ship. Um, and that worries me too, because are we, you know, are we abandoning something that actually needs our innovative thinking? Um, so anyways, just all this stuff was coming up in my head as you're talking about this, because, you know, you as a young person um, with your background and, and with, you know, your experience in the world, I mean, it's just so valuable for the students. I get to take your courses. 
And it's just such a bummer that like other fellow faculty members can't recognize how important that is for like the future. Yeah, it it is really, it, it can be really frustrating. But mm-hmm. I have also kind of gone around and have slowly been trying to like bring people over to my side sure. <laughs> of things. Yeah. Um, the biggest help has been my co-professor. She is, you know, mm. in charge of our program and everything. And she's got kids who are graduating high school this week. Mm. So mm-hmm. um, she is, and she won't mind me saying this, like she is significantly older than me, but mm-hmm. she understands how important it is. She gets it. To, mm-hmm. Yeah, to embrace this. And, but also she is a communications professor and her ah. obsession is propaganda and mm-hmm. critical thinking. And mm-hmm. so like some of my students call her class like Google 101 and like understanding how to Google something. So and good. then yeah. filter through the results yep. and then find yep. the information that's applicable. And then I wish everyone had to take her class. That's yeah. Perfect. I mean, like it's <laughs> yeah. great. And she, yeah. but like it's really important because the students now, we have so few students actually coming to us for like, you know, some of like the really basic stuff because they actually know mm-hmm. how to use the tools. Like a lot of Which people don't huge. think of Google as a tool or Pinterest mm-hmm. as a search engine. Like we're teaching them and showing them how to do this and she's embraced yep. it. And then awesome. having her on board has also helped me to kind of like start to reach out to other faculty that are really good friends of hers. And she's like, look how easy this is. I don't get mm. emailed asking how to make a hyperlink. Yes. Like we have yes. Google and yep. that has been amazing. Like Christine is just fabulous and I love her, but um, it's also the reason why I've stayed. Um, like mm. I tell my mm-hmm. students all the time, like I can literally make more in a weekend mm-hmm. building and designing a website than I do yeah. in a whole year of teaching. Yeah. Um, like it, mm-hmm. it is far surpassed my salary and, but I stay doing it because I'm so committed to the people of Appalachia, mm-hmm. which is primarily what my students are. Like my students are primarily first generation Appalachian college students. Mm-hmm. And my goal and mission is to teach them that they don't have to leave their haulers in order to be successful. I mean, like we have high speed mm-hmm. fiber optic internet being like run this summer. Yep. Like they can have businesses online and make I more money it. than their parents who are coal miners. Yep. And yep. Yep. to me, that contributes to the economic viability and stability of like my world and my community yep. and the people that, and the culture that I love. And if I step out now and leave it alone to, you know, these people who are wonderful and have, you know, PhDs in the fields that they're in, but they're mm-hmm. also, their PhDs are from quite a while ago. Yep. And I don't yep. know how much, you know, they're sure they may be reading academic journals, but are they reading things that, you know, like continuing to learn and then attaching that into sharing with their students. And I'd like mm-hmm. to say that they are, but there are some people that I've met that just almost revel in the fact that they don't do that and they don't, yeah. mm-hmm. that they are mm-hmm. on autopilot. And that terrifies me to like leave yeah. these students and like, and I hate to be like, oh, well, they're our future, but they really are like, and, mm-hmm. and it sounds silly coming from me who my birthday is tomorrow and I'll be 27. It's just like, for me to say that makes me almost even more frustrated that older professors aren't staying. And that's not to say that you have mm-hmm. to stay. Like, I don't want to guilt you know. or bully anybody to doing it. But people ask me all the time, 
why I've not switched to being just an online business. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. for me and my background growing up in a rural Appalachian community that did have a high focus on education and a really big focus on arts and crafts and like folk dance, Mm -hmm. it's important for me to like help preserve that through educating Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in like a modern digital age. Um, Mm -hmm. So that I, I don't want everybody to gain all these wonderful skills and move to New York city or to Louisville and, you know, go work someplace else. Like I want like, yeah, Mm -hmm. like the Mm -hmm. brain drain to stop in our community Mm -hmm. so that we can fix Mm -hmm. the issues that we have, like mountaintop removal. Like how can we fix that? I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously we can't, but there are ways that we can work towards, you know, recovering. And, um, that's kind of like, that's why I stay like, it's worth it to me. Like there's more than a financial incentive for me to stay in higher ed. Um, yeah. And I feel like I just like stepped off my little soapbox, but that's why. No, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that. And part of me is just like, I feel like your, you know, my, the next thing I want to ask you is about what is your vision for your business? And, um, it sounds to me (laughs) taking a guess is, is that the business is going to fuel these larger, um, uh, the larger impact you want to make. It sounds like in your community, um, and, you know, the teaching is a way to stay in that um, on a very practical level. But I could also see your business really fueling resources and and other, you know, other ways to pull things into your community that is needed. So I'm curious kind of what your vision is for your business and how that is going to help you really make an impact on the world. Because from a teacher's perspective, you know, you and I both know um, helping a student in a classroom, it, you know, there's nothing really like it. It's It's one of the most fulfilling things to do. Um, and for me, without a tie back to my community like you have and um, recognizing the impact that education would have like locally where I live, to me, the classroom was limiting. But to you, I think you see the generational like impact that you are having on your community. So I'm curious if you wouldn't mind sharing. Um, yeah, where, where, where you see this whole thing going, um, whatever it is you decide to continue with, or however your business looks in the future. Um, the why behind your, your business sounds really big. So I'm as I've mentioned before, I'm somebody who really likes to do a lot of things. Like I feel like if I'm mm-hmm. not, like if my schedule is not full, I will probably have a panic attack. Like yeah, I hear my you. husband gets on me because I schedule in bathroom breaks when we go on trips. Like <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. I make sure that nothing, no time is wasted. Um, but yeah. <laughs> so the teaching side of things does kind of let me keep a pulse on what's going mm-hmm. on, but it's just mm-hmm. as important for me to keep a foot in the digital world too. Yeah. Um, yep. And I kind of like, you perfectly summed it up. Like my teaching helps me serve the people that I want to serve, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, the people of Appalachia, because I feel like so often we're ignored um, or people listen to the way that we talk and just assume that we're all, you know, like completely incompetent and don't know anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But then also my business is, I I can't, I, I wouldn't be fulfilled if I just taught. Um, Mm, and mm. it wouldn't like solve that need to constantly learn and adapt and kind of like to be the road runner and like figure out how to change and like, you know, pivot really quickly, you know? And I think that that's really important to me. Um, but by being online and by making a higher salary in the online world, um, you know, through working with clients or, um, any course stuff that I work with on people, um, 
that, that does fund what I do, but then I'm mm-hmm. also able to give back to local nonprofits. Yep. And that's something I'm really, really passionate about. And, um, I don't typically give back in a financial sense. Um, I choose somebody every quarter that I really work with on, we do complete rebranding. We do data analysis. Oh, we do a website so design. You, like, and donate your services. Yeah. And then I do, yeah. um, strategic storytelling with them and social media marketing, Um, so I act as lead and then I have three or four of my students, depending on which semester it is. Um, in the fall semester, we have a, I teach a course called strategic storytelling. And so we tie that into this course and, um, they have the option to opt out. Obviously I'm not forcing them Mm -hmm. to volunteer with a nonprofit, but, um, they pretty much always choose to do the nonprofit versus doing a, some hypothetical project. Um, and so they work with it on me. Like they get to do the videos, they get to do the social media and they get kind of like that hands-on extra project of, Mm -hmm. you know, doing this together and like other people in the college experience. Yeah. And they get to put on a resume. Um, but other people in the college will come in and help with it too. Like our rec management program, somebody from that program, uh, we worked with Kentucky natural lanes trust three years ago And, um, they're just this big outdoor, like preserving a wildlife corridor. And so we worked together, um, with the rec management kids and they got to come in and figure out like, okay, well, what would people actually want to do here? Like, how can we encourage people to donate? And, um, just kind of like bringing that parallel learning bit back into play, but Mm -hmm. also Mm -hmm. not just learning, but being of service, um, to our community and supporting nonprofits. So that's really like, my driving force, like what I enjoy mm-hmm. doing. Um, like we're bringing a mobile pop-up shop for steam for kids this summer. Um, mm-hmm. so I've been doing like all of their Instagram stuff, all of their website design stuff, like doing the like wow. strategic public relations thing with some of my students so that they can learn and see, and they're, they're not even in school. Like that's the thing that amazes me. It's not even an internship or a course. Like they just said, Hey, what are you working on this summer? Can we play too? Like that's what, that's what wow. my student said, play. Um, I love it. So that's they've amazing. like, they're enjoying it. And they're, I hope, I, I sincerely hope I'm encouraging them to not just think about personal profit and to look yeah. into the, like, how can I be of service and how can I continue to help people? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so far so good. Like it looks like they're doing, yeah. they're enjoying it. <laughs> But we'll yeah, see. I mean, if that's not evidence enough too to sh- show how motivation is often not just tied to grades or whatever, like it's tied to like actually seeing the fruits of their work and their labor, like impacting, um, you know, a, a nonprofit, a, their community. I mean, all of that. Very cool. So I guess the last part I would like to leave our listeners with as we kind of wrap up, it's just been such a fruitful conversation. Um what what kind of advice do you have about, I think for you, as you have a jam-packed schedule, you know, what advice do you have for people who do want to stay in teaching, um, but build a business, whether or not it's to, you know, ef- eventually leave, but how how do you spread out your time? Um, you know, what, what, what your week looks like, anything like that. What type of advice do you have for kind of juggling those two things? Well, I schedule like a mad woman. Um, I'm not surprised. And I have, you would have have to, right? Yeah. yeah, I have things very planned out. Um, so, and I also have a ridiculous amount of flexibility with, um, Mm. my teaching load. Um, Mm, even though I do teach a lot, um, like this semester, this spring having eight classes, I was able to choose how I wanted them to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of my courses, I think that, or not think, I know that I teach best um, digitally. So, uh, so you're with, online for a lot. Yeah. With our previous yep. vice president, I set it up so that I could have all of my classes being hybrid. 
Um, Love it. I remember going around and making that argument to all my uh, faculty. So good. It's such a genius. Oh man, it was great. We so I. It's good. It's both. It's beneficial for both the student. Obviously, I mean, I had. It's so interesting. Back to this, you know, side note, but related to the conversation earlier about the pushback. I would make arguments for creating hybrid courses. Of course, I had to write total new outlines, right? Because a face-to-face, a a full online and a hybrid, they're all different. So you have to explain how the course hours are going to be split up, which is fair. So I made it my mission while I was there to hybridize every course that was in our curriculum for sociology. And I was like, look, we're you. We teach at a community college. We have single mothers with children. We have um, young kids. We have older, older folks like they're working full time, multiple jobs. Like we just live in a world where this going and showing up, you know, certain number of days a week just doesn't work anymore. So the idea that we're teaching them online skills and um, having them come in and have discussions and they basically couldn't make an argument against it, but it was shocking to see that there's still a pushback for that. And they're like, well, how are you going to determine what hours are what? And I'm like, I don't know. We're all making this shit up anyway. Like, I mean, the online homework submission, I like never collected papers almost the entire time I lived there. I didn't want people to print stuff out. And they were just like, so like, what? Why would you do that? I'm like, do you know how much time you waste collecting all these papers? Like, um, but even still, all that being said, uh, people still were just like, well, I don't know. And they thought, well, I'll tell you what they thought. They thought it was me trying to not have to be on campus, which. Oh, I get that all the time. There are people, (laughs) right? They're just like, you only teach on Tuesdays. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like why the heck not? And I, you know, this is a theme that has come up with people because that is how I built my business on the side was again, like you, hybrid courses, um, full online, um, certain, you know, there are definitely in our contracts in most schools, what percentage of your load can be online. And there are active conversations I know happening all over the country about, well, what does a full online professor look like at a public institution? Like, quote unquote, are you allowed to have that? Um, and there's this judgment about a good faculty member being present on campus. And I think some of the argument is is true. Like if you're teaching uh, online, if you could organize that your student could come meet you, I think that's valuable. Um, we live across the street from the college. So yeah, and, and, and students and come to still, our house all the time. Yeah, I and I think it's less about that and more about the asynchronous learning part of it, right? Like, mm-hmm. so the fact that a student can grab that extra hour that happens to be at 10 o'clock at night when the kids are asleep to actually learn, why do they have to be sitting somewhere at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday and how and who gets to come to school as a result of that being their option? That's a huge conversation that I think we're all going to be having <laughs> relatively like it's happening now, but then it's how much of it. And then, you know, anyways, I, this could be a whole other conversation. <laughs> but I think I think it's interesting because if you can have some control over how often you have to show up on campus, that is super helpful in helping you build a business on the side because your drive time, your, you know, hours in front of the student, your all of that now becomes negotiable um, because you don't have to use that time to do those kind of things. Now you can use it to either build a business or make your online course better. So anyways, side rant. Oh, no, I, I totally agree. So <laughs> but yeah, thank you. So thank you for sharing that. So you have this amazing schedule that you are just like on top of. So um, yeah, what's your advice around creating that schedule? If you're still in higher ed, talking 
um, really talking with, if you have access, we have very easy access to our vice president of academic affairs, Mm. but like, or your provost, like go and talk to them. And like mine at least was so excited about what I was bringing to him and explaining like, Hey, this is what I want to do. And here's why I want to do it. And then like, if you can find research to back it up and say like, you know, or even like I just did surveys of like our actual students and I said, you know, this is specifically to hybridize your courses. Yeah, to hybridize my yeah. courses. And yep. that has helped immensely. But then also mm-hmm. we I, I talked with our vice president, but then I also talked to my co professor and we were able to like work out our schedules so that she teaches Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I teach Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um but Thursdays is my office day. Um, so I just teach mm-hmm. on Tuesdays and then Thursday is kind of like set up as this lab time where anybody can nice. come at any time and I'm just there. Um, nice. Nobody takes also advantage of it. Also very helpful for online <laughs> students. Yeah. But a lot of them will take advantage of it digitally, like we'll Zoom sure. or screen share. Um, and they'd cool. much rather do that anyways. Um, and they don't feel as like threatened, I guess. Like I don't think mm. I'm a very threatening person. Like mm-hmm. I would scare maybe like a bunny. But um, like – I think that they're kind of afraid to admit that they don't know something Mm. and which is Mm -hmm. the whole point of college is admitting you don't know something and figuring out how to fix that. And so it's really helpful (laughs) from someone from your perspective. (laughs) Yes. But this is funny because I, this is a recurring theme on this podcast is that, you know, unfortunately academic training is, is exactly what you're saying. uh, And that's actually impacts people who've been through the system in a way that you haven't been through the system because you've experienced something so unique, I feel like in education, Mm -hmm. but we aren't supposed to mess up. Like that's not what academics do. That's not what we were so encouraged to fail and to Uh, fail brilliantly. And then to like figure out all of the, that's something I also really liked about one professor at Bria college. Like every time I would do something wrong, she would have me come up with like five different ways I could have done it right or at least better. And it was just like, and it was kind of humiliating at first. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. for, for a 12 year old, like, sure. But at the same time, it it made me kind of change like my whole idea, like, especially with my newest business doing data, I had to fail a whole lot to figure out what way people wanted to be talked to and not Mm -hmm. terrified Mm -hmm. of data Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. like to keep kind of tweaking that and looking at it. But yeah, it was really um, like, that's, that's what I would recommend is like having open conversations Mm -hmm. that are also supported by some data um, (laughs) to explain like why this is important and how helpful it is. But then also like, it's kind of like a good give and take. Like if you're not going to get paid well, obviously don't go and say, I'm not getting paid well. So this is why I need to do a hybrid class, but to like, it's almost like an extra incentive to me. You know, I'm definitely on the lower end of the pay scale for a professor, but I also have the flexibility of, you know, teaching a full load on Tuesdays, Mm. you know, hybrid classes and then online courses. But, Mm -hmm. um, it, it makes me kind of not as resentful, I guess. Mm, that yes, that I, I do have this huge. this flexibility. I'm still going, I, I believe, above and beyond what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I'm also kind of doing that because I have the flexibility. Like I'm not expected to be you in the office can. five days a week. Mm-hmm. I can help them mm-hmm. whenever I feel like it. That's um, such a great instead point, of Lydia. feeling like obliged <laughs> so to do it constantly. Yep. That is a good, yep. Another theme that we've had on this podcast is the expectation of overgiving. And you may be able to overgive, but you're doing it with, you know, where you can, Mm -hmm. basically. And um, they're able to get maybe, quote, you know, get more out of you. Yeah, not on your own terms. You're able to maybe, 
Yeah, because because you've been you're being there's a give and take and they they're working with you to fit your schedule so you feel awesome in contributing to the college or working towards that. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> it's not perfect. Um <laughs> it'll get there hopefully. But, okay. That's a great tip. Yeah. That's a really great tip. Um and I think um that will be really helpful to some people who are trying to navigate even their last few semesters as they plan an exit strategy or something um is to really wield that power that you can on campus to make your schedule what you can. Now, understandably, not everyone um you know, your your admin may not be as um you know, open to hearing those suggestions or whatever, but, you know, take it where you can get it and say no to things that you don't need to be doing. I think that was a thing I learned to do my last semester as well. Well, that was a a fantastic conversation, Lydia. Thank you so much for coming um, and hanging out with me. Um, I, where would people uh, find you? Where are you hanging out? I I definitely see you all over Facebook. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Where, where can they find you and and learn more about your services um, and just kind of stalk you? (laughs) Well, I lurk in humans of online business all the time. Um, Great group. But then um, I, and also this podcast group, but I'm also at turnquisthouse.com and on Instagram at turnquisthouse. And then I'm also at LydiaKits.com and on Instagram as Lydia Kitts. So oh, I am yeah. not following you on Instagram yet. Uh, well, I, I just post pictures of my dogs and plants. I'm working on an Instagram I love strategy. That kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> for that one. But right now it's just dogs and plants and the occasional child thrown in too. Um, but yeah. So but I love it. Working on it. That's my working part on of it. my plan this summer. So There you go, right? We got to move on to the next platform. Um, (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll definitely drop all of that in the show notes. And uh, I can't wait to see you around more online. Thank you for coming and hanging out. Thank you. Thank you.